Hello and welcome to the Sports Technology Podcast. In this, our eighth episode, we are joined by Dr. Yoni Ronkainen. Yoni researches at the Sports Technology Institute and has considerable experience in both industry and academia in sports tech. Today, we're talking about the Discovery Channel's list of 10 technologies transforming sports. For more information, check out our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at SportsTechPod. Enjoy! All right, welcome to the Sports Technology Podcast, number eight. My name's Henry, and Mike is here. Hello again. And with us this week, we, or episode, we have Dr. Yoni Ronkainen. Say hello. Um, so uh, Yoni's a, kind of a, a friend and colleague. Um, we've worked with him on projects, and uh, he's, he's graciously offered to, to give us a dose of his expertise this week. So would you like to say a bit about, um, a bit about yourself and, and how you got into sports tech? Certainly. I mean, uh, I've got a passion for sport, played football my whole career, soccer for those of you, uh, oh, global yes. football, <laughs> global football, um, so I've had a strong interest in sport all my life, uh, playing football, squash uh, and pool as well, and in 2001 I joined the sports technology undergraduate course at Loughborough University, I was in the second cohort of the course starting. After my uh, undergraduate degree, I spent some time in Germany in the Adidas Innovation Team uh, doing my internship. I then returned back to Loughborough University to complete my PhD um, under the supervision of Dr. Andy Arland. And uh, the PhD was uh, looking at optics and real-time tracking machine vision um, type application within the sport goods industry. And um, since that time, I worked in Progressive sports technologies for a couple of years, and working on several internal and external R&D projects with major brands such as Nike, Lululemon, and Umbro. And since since uh, Progressive Sports, I actually uh, left the sporting goods industry for a year to uh, go traveling around the world, and now I'm surprise, surprise, back again in the sports technology institute at Loughborough, working as an RA on an international collaboration that we've got ongoing with Asia at the moment. Very good. Um, so uh, just a quick question, when you say ball or tracking of, of objects in sport, your, your PhD, so do you want, just want to say a couple words of what, what, the, what the project was? Yes, of course. Adidas, and I'm sure a lot of the other major sport goods manufacturers, when they're developing uh, New, ball, new balls for whether it be soccer or other sports, um, they do a lot of benchmark testing and really in, in soccer, which is a specialist area in my PhD, you're looking at measuring the ball velocity, launch angle and spin rate mm-hmm. and we were trying to uh, create a system that could uh, accurately and reliably um, do those measurements. Uh, in order to do that we needed to be able to track the ball in real time quickly and we were able to measure the launch velocity and launch angle accurately in a non-contact, um, yeah, non-contact and non-marking approach. Uh, the spin measurement is much more challenging. Uh, we tried to use that using laser vibrometry, which worked to a certain degree. However, um, in order to get um, good measurements, we actually had to mark the ball up, mm-hmm. which sort of defeated the object of what we were trying to achieve. So. It's ongoing, um, it was a bit That's of a, a blue, sky, blue sky project, um, but it was deemed um, you know, success at the time and clearly 
um, if it's going to be taken further, further forward, uh, it would require another PhD project. Yeah. All right, very good. So this week we will be talking about 10 texts transforming sports. And this is a list that's published by the Discovery News. Um, we'll put the URL on our website, which is sportstechnologypodcast.com. Um, it's not a very friendly URL, but there are 10, so it's a list of 10 things, and some of them are more feasible than others. Some of, some of them, I think, are, like we, can, we can see them now in products, right? And others are kind of dreams. So we thought we'd um, kind of go through the list and, and offer our opinions and kind of discuss what we think is, is practical and, and where we think this technology has a place or, or doesn't has a, does not have a place. Um, Right, so shall we start at number one? Let's do it. Number one, ingestible computers. So this is the idea that you can you can swallow something that will transmit information to an outside source. And um, they actually have this for medical applications. Um, you'd, you'd swallow it, the signal gets, the signal is goes into your stomach and it, it, it detects whether a drug is present or hydration or something. And then it kind of beams information to a patch that's stuck on your stomach with a, like, on your belly with a adhesive. And then that kind of amplifies the signal to a, a Bluetooth device or other handheld thing. And the, the application is, in, in medicine, is to know, like, whether drugs are working. Um, but in sport, they, Discovery News postulates that, that it may be used for, like, temperature and, and maybe even heart rate or, or hydration or things like that for athletes. And so you know like how you're performing almost and on a, on a more basic level. So what do you think? It, 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 I mean, in theory, we could have this on a watch someday. Like just you're running down the street, you know your blood sugar levels or I don't know. Just yeah, that's one thing like with the way that it's kind of posed in the article is something you you swallow so presumably it has to kind of follow your stomach track so I don't know if that's is really that where you want kind of your mind to be like I don't know obviously you can get temperature and stuff like that but um, I think you could probably can get a lot of data but I think that would be just scratching the surface that might be like the easiest way to yeah to get data and just ingesting something yeah I mean just to add uh, within the sports science um, research um, Measuring cool temperature is is hard, and anyone who's uh, <laughs> participated in a study in the lab where they've uh, had a probe inserted into them, I think uh, everyone knows that uh, it doesn't matter matter how comfortable you are with that. It's it's uh, yeah. not the way to go, and there are temperature pills, cool temperature pills that you can digest and hmm. come out within two to three days within sport with it that are used in sports science at the moment. Clearly oh, okay. that is all they do. Um, and I've seen a few studies where they've been used on in soccer. Mm -hmm. It's clearly using uh, probes during a live game uh, to measure core temperature definitely wouldn't work. Uh, it's not feasible. Um, so it does exist to measure core temperature at the moment for a pill, but clearly they only last for a few days before they Find the way. Right, it's, it's kind of a, one of those things where you want, like, how to what's the best way to harness that information? Presumably, if you can get a chip into someone, you can almost do an unlimited amount of things if you're yeah. putting sensors and stuff. But who's going to use it, and how do you get that information to them? Is it on a PDA, iPad, or something yeah. like that? And then to 
taking the step forward is do athletes, do just athletes have it, their coaches have it, then the media, and then you're kind of just like the general public or mm -hmm. kind of your, if you're everyday runner like you or I, and do we want to digest the pill before we go out for our run and see what our latest um, yeah, stats were? <laughs> I think maybe, maybe for coaches, but, and, and, I think there's there's a lot of effort that needs to put into into processing the data, like you were saying, processing the data for our American constituent. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just as a recreational runner, I'm not sure I'd, I'd gain that much unless I was like monitoring other variables as well and and really doing some like heavy duty statistical analysis on how like how I'm performing at different heart rates and it's just just a lot of a lot of data crunching that needs to happen to make it useful. I think. Right, but even I think on the where you're going to see it is like kind of where maybe just talking about like a more general trend with the sports industry is a lot of times it starts at the top levels, like the top elite guys. Someone has to kind of do something that maybe changes the game or changes how they train before everyone else adopts it. So you're you kind of always are the person with the that wants to have a couple seconds off their their 800 meter. Um, race time or something like that. It just takes a few of those type of athletes to kind of work in conjunction with either the brands or Sports Tech Institute like here or somewhere else to before they kind of just catch it on. But maybe maybe it's not ingestible computers or maybe it's some other type of sensing mechanism yeah. that you can... Well, while we're talking about other sensing mechanisms, number two on the list is wearable computers. And that's... That kind like, of feeds right into... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just everything but on the outside. <laughs> yeah, just the same idea of taking a, some sort of measurement and having it fed back to you right away. Yeah. I mean, uh, over the past probably five to ten years, um, a lot of testing that's occurred in the labs here in the Sports Technology Research Group, you know, one of the main drawbacks to the technology has been that you've had to have a, a cable or something that is uh, Transmitting the data from that. Right, so you really can't use it during, like, it's great for lab testing, whatever. You can create a, a static test, you can repeat it, but who's going to use it? No one, no athletes going to use it when they perform, right? That's and, kind of a challenge. Exactly, and I suppose that's really what, why this, uh, why I foresee the wearable computers or embedded technology really taking off in the next five to ten years. Um, and I know we were discussing just a minute ago regarding Under uh, Armour, as of this year, have launched um, something called the Buck, which is... Um, kind of looks like Iron Man, right? <laughs> if, you, if you think about like Iron Man's little patch, he, he wears it in his chest. Yeah. So you can attach an onboard computer onto your shirt that actually does have some em embedded um, technology in the fabric that can uh, measure surface skin temperature the breathing rate and the heart rate of the athlete and transmit that, um, I think, via Bluetooth protocol to a laptop. Yep, and I, I think they were using it at the uh, NFL Combine. But even then, I think I think it's a great step forward, but I think they're kind of just scratching the surface with that because the NFL Combine is just kind of, it's almost a lab setting in, in a dome, basically. So it's just people running for 40-yard dashes and jumping as high as they can, so it's not in a game yet, but I think it's, I don't think it's going to be too long before we, we see that type of stuff. I suppose the next, the next step from that is 
Um, at the moment, they have to attach the onboard computer onto the garment. Right. And I suppose further down the line with flexible battery technology, um, you'd expect it to all of the electronics to be embedded into the Yeah, and even so, like Reebok is working with a company in Cambridge, in Cambridge, Massachusetts called MC10 to, that does flexible electronics. Hmm. So, um, that are uh, like paper thin, so kind of moving along the same direction. So it's not just Under Armour, it's a lot of the brands. I assume Nike's kind of moving in that direction. Adidas must be like, it's just kind of like once one brand does it, it's going to just trickle down and everyone yeah. has to have their, their style or their Smart flavor. shirts or something. <laughs> yeah. So then yeah. it's just a matter of, again, who are the customers for that? Cause that's, I think that's the hardest thing. It's cool that you have these, these sensors that you can eat or whatever, put in your hair, put it wherever, <laughs> wear it, I don't know. But like, who's going to buy it? Because there's no, if there's no customer for it, like what's the reason in, in, in developing it? So I don't, I just don't know where, where might, it goes. It might be a bit of a technology push, some would say, and that, <laughs> that they, now we have the capability so we can, we can, or they can rather, they can create it and, and, and show how great it is and see if people will buy it. Like I, but that's I, how you get into like bubbles and stuff. Like the internet was like yeah. that. Could you say maybe see something like that in sports technology where you have a lot of this stuff coming up for the elite athletes, but no one buys it besides them, and they're not even buying because they're sponsored by these yeah. companies. So like yeah, at the end of the day, you want to make money, right? So. Mm -hmm. I think uh, looking at the Nike Plus. Um, interface, I think that's the crux of it. It's making it easy to use by the general public mm -hmm. and the processing or the technology behind the uh, wearable uh, or embedded garments might be quite advanced, but what the user sees at the end of it is very basic. I think that's right. really going to be And the it speaks key. to kind of these general overarching themes and that kind of cross borders where like you're just, you want to improve your health. That's kind of the bottom line for yeah. Nike 10, like the Nike Plus, so you can interact online or wherever. It That's may a be. big one, also the so. social aspect. Yeah, absolutely. social integration so aspect. Like a little motive, extrinsic motivation to get people to yeah. to exercise more or go for that extra mile in the run, so they can post it online. <laughs> Bragging rights. Yeah. Should we? Yeah, I was going to just add. Um, clearly, at the moment. Um, in a lot of industries, uh, the Asian territory seems a huge growth market, and I think within the sporting goods industry, that's going to happen as well over time. At the moment, the participation levels within sport are incredibly low in Asia. Um, say in India, 1.5% of people actually participate in sport on a regular basis. And wow. um, clearly, over the next few decades, you'd expect that to start growing as the middle class begins to have more disposable income and their time to. Spend on other activities such as sport, but that might be a kind of an interesting, interesting evolution because they're they're not really behind in terms of technology. Like everyone's exposed to the internet, computers, and stuff. So when they're introducing new garments, they might be less averse to kind of trying out if they're just trying out a new sport, maybe trying out a, a garment with some sensors in it. So mm -hmm. that it's not maybe not scaring them off, whereas. US or UK kind of have these more traditional ways that garments look and jerseys look, so that might be a kind 
but different variable. Kind of a blank slate almost. Right, uh, right. New, new start. Well, let's, let's shift to another point. Um, want to pick one, Yoni? One, two, done. Shall we move on to putting you on the spot? Yeah. Well, I'm happy <laughs> number to. Ten. Number 10. Yeah. Go to number 10. Toolless manufacturing. Mike, go. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so maybe uh, toolless manufacturing, when I think of that, it's kind of where I, the space that I work in is kind of added to manufacturing. So rather than um, kind of thinking in terms of if you have a, a cube of material you're cutting away to build some sort of part or piece of equipment, you can basically create it layer by layer and that enables you to have a lot of geometric freedom. You're not, you don't need someone on, uh, on a CNC machine or a lathe trying to create parts. You basically just have someone in the computer lab design a new part, talk to Burton Snowboards in the past on, on the podcast. They use it um, for de designing bindings and companies like Reebok and Nike also use it to prototype materials for, um, for a range of applications. So just, um, what, what, what's the main benefit of doing, would you say, of, of doing toolless manufacturing over... over yeah, so I think maybe it's a, we, we can step back and say like if you're I think where the technology is now with some of these um, kind of additive technologies, it's not so much manufacturing. I don't think it's at the stage where you're going to be replacing something like injection molding or these high-scale operations in China. It's more going to be um, for prototyping. So yeah. building, being able to iterate very quickly. So going from design to design um, relatively quickly and efficiently and, and fast. So, so, so for the consumer, this would mean like faster turn, faster. So basically, yeah, so like it, it just kind of continue on that trend of um, sports companies in general kind of go on the year to year cycle where they're coming out with new product every year. So um, rather than having a design you may, like today you could see a design um, next year that maybe if we didn't have some of these technologies, it would have taken five years to get to that point or three yeah. years. So you're just going to kind of see a more, um, maybe more um, dramatic changes or kind of um, different designs and all sorts of products, not just kind of hard goods, but softer goods as well, kind of more flexible. Um, I suppose from the manufacturer's point of view, the, the large costs in the different stages of prototyping is the tooling costs. Absolutely. So the molds and um, if you have to, if you get it wrong the first time, you're not able, like it's just more expensive. The whole process takes time. It may take six weeks or three weeks to order just mold to make um, some parts, whereas in kind of some of the manufacturing processes now, you can create functional prototypes in a day um, and have them tested um, out on the track or out in on the, on the slopes or something in, in a span of 24 hours. So just having that design capability and kind of uh, being able to change up really what you're doing on a weekly basis and explore new areas I think will lead to a lot of new innovations and um, that hopefully will have a positive effect. Not only for the, the consumer in terms of design and usability, but from the company's perspective as well, they're going to be able to kind of integrate the technology to, to save money on tooling, like you said, or save time, design time, and um, just time to market in general. It could be a, 
cost savings area for them. So we definitely see this as a massively evolving. Uh, Absolutely, area. I think um, uh, I've just been in the conference the last two days here for um, kind of the future of additive manufacturing, and they're kind of talking about the same things that we're talking about in terms of trying to not only in maybe make um, parts integrated with electronics as well. So um, trying to print. The idea would be almost like print a cell phone. It says print some multi-material um, part with embedded electronics. So kind of take the next step with sports. If you're maybe in, in the arena of snowboarding, you can print a high back or some sort of binding that reports how fast you're going down the hill, what acceleration you're going, like high, how high you jump, what the temperature is. So just having that embedded into your, your parts, that's probably a long way off, but... Um, kind of the seeds are being planted now to kind of start thinking in that, that general cool. direction. Like an airtime meter. Right, yeah. And I mean, even even board light up green if you go over like five seconds. Yeah, <laughs> I think people are doing it now. There's, um, there's been attempts to kind of instrument boards and, and skis as well so that you can almost um, have a digital display in the nose. So mm -hmm. as you're going down the hill, you can see how fast you're going. That but that might fantastic. be... The, that they're two kind of separate parts, but maybe one day they could be manufactured together. Hmm. Cool. Um, next one? Can we should go to number nine, robotics. Yeah, right number nine. Sally, so the expert. This is something I've been uh, working more and more on over the last few years um, since the Sports Technology Institute um, was founded. Um, we actually purchased the Six Degree of Freedom serial topology. Uh, iRobot, and not surprisingly. Uh, so for uh, so, so in English maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you, uh, uh, generally, um, sporting goods companies have used um, like uh, sort of robots to test um, within one or two degrees of freedom. So very simple, uh, repetitive motions. So just like going just like left and right, left and right, right. up yeah. or down. So for that, maybe footwear is a good example. Every time you land on that. On the, on the heel of your shoe and you put in lots of force um, through, through the midsole um, of, of, the, of the shoe itself and uh, what the sporting goods manufacturers have been doing is just very simply replicating this just applying a load vertically um, onto the midsole of the shoe. Now the danger with that is um, you can test it cyclically to see if the materials uh, withstand uh, repeated impacts to simulate what a your average runner, runner at home um, would do, um, say with a new pair of shoes, they buy for going out jogging on a regular basis. But I think the problem is um, the human uh, biomechanics is very complicated. Mm -hmm. um, lots of different motions going on. It's clearly not just a vertical loading um, on the shoe as, as some of the testing has been done in the past. So what we're able to do now in the lab downstairs is try and recreate human um, gates or running motion and program that on our robot which okay. has That's the cool. six degrees of freedom so not only can you move it up down left right you can also rotate it um, around the freedom. Okay, it's That's, like one of the yeah it's almost like a like like an arm from the shoulder out so it has it kind of has an elbow kind of has a wrist and then it has some fingers or, or whatever you want to put on it but it, it's like imagine imagine an arm from the shoulder just sticking out of the ground. Yeah, it's used commonly in automotive, right? Like big, a, yeah, like a big, 
very much uh, automotive around and aeronautical <coughs> industry, uh, manufacturing industry. Right, so if you see the big assembly lines in, in car factories, the, those are the kind of robots that we're looking at now. Exactly, and the robot we have downstairs is used um, on those assembly lines. Okay, so but now I'm kind of turning it into what can we do in mimicking the, what the human body does with that. Exactly, because uh, a lot of the robots we have in-house actually replicate just one task only, uh, very reliably and repeatedly, so, which is what we want. And now what this machine allows us to do is uh, we could put um, a golf club on there, we could have um, footwear on there, and we'll do simulated body motion and running on there for sports bra testing and, and a whole host of um, different activities. We've even summing up your street, Mike, uh, with the snowboard boot. Um, so what's the biggest thing in turn what's the biggest challenge in using something like that? You have all this freedom that you can do, but is it the programming, like how do you, how do you know what you're supposed to program into it? Like, do you have to then use some sort of like motion track tracking to kind of get an idea of okay, if I swing a golf club, this is generally how I move, or like kind of massing points. Like, how does that work? Yeah, good question. Definitely, um, we use motion tracking technology in the house, whether it be Vicon or Coda, um, to look at how the athlete actually moves. And then we try and replicate that on the, mo uh, on the robot. So those are motion capture that you put like little dots on. Um, exactly. And Any, anyone who's uh, seen computer games or uh, animations, the reason those uh, animations look so realistic to humans is because they have used human motion to, you know, capture that data to see how they move okay. and they can overlay. So anyone who's seen Shrek or other things, they do move in very human-like um, ways. Right, so now, then taking the next step with actually programming a robot to do something like that, and then once you have that general movement, I guess, you can really push the boundaries. So you can, if you want to go from a walk to a run, or like a, a slow golf swing to a high golf swing, and start to see not only changes maybe with the robot, but with the equipment that you're using, I'm guessing. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, it goes back to the original reason why to use robots is, you know, they're incredibly reliable, they don't tire, they don't need sick days off, and they'll do what they're told when, when, when they're told or programmed to do so. And they're clearly what this robot allows us to do is just replicate the motion we're trying to achieve very repeatedly. So what do you think, where does that all lead then? Like, where do you think that, what's the biggest benefit of doing something like that? Great question, Mike. <laughs> um, taking footwear, for example, yeah. it really allows us to look at cyclic loading of footwear. We can not only do cyclic loading, but we can do that. We might want to look at someone who's over-pronating, someone who's under-pronating, someone who's very neutral in their running stance. So we can really uh, start programming um, sort of different themes of athletes. Okay. So then kind of creating for, like taking a step back with the, the actual company, so kind of segmenting them by how they move and kind of creating products specifically for them. Yeah, because I mean, uh, anyone who's bought trainers, for example, you know, there's a whole host of different types of shoes that you can buy. Generally, you know, you can go into a shop and have your feet um, or your gait measured to try and match you up with this shoe. Um, so really what the robots allow um, the manufacturers to do is to ensure that their shoes do perform 
as they shoot for those different profiles. So what about in terms of like, so this is kind of like static testing, like it's, what about like Terminator type robots? <laughs> like where you can train, like Robo play tennis against a guy, or you can have a guy throw a baseball pitch. That's a robot. Robot World Cup is going on now, I think, or it may have recently finished. Are you, are you, are you familiar with that? It's, it's, no. it's kind of cool. It, the, um, the robots are all created by some French company. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. We'll put it on the website, which is sportstechnologypodcast.com. Um, but these robots are probably maybe two feet tall or 70 centimeters or so. Um, and they, they have legs, they have arms and heads and sensors, uh, light sensors and motion sensors, and I think they have sonar as well. And so the universities and, and maybe other private entities will, will get the robots and their, their task is to program them. And all the programming, I guess that they're, they're kind of blank when you get them and then you program them to play soccer. And I think there are two or three per team per pitch um, or per side. And so it's, it's, the, the robots are completely autonomous. So once they're put on the pitch and, and you push go, that's, that's it. They have to figure everything out for themselves. And it's, it's really quite impressive to watch. They're, like You see them take like little steps, and if there are obstacles, they'll like turn and walk around them, and, and they'll kick the balls, and like sometimes they'll fall over and then get back up. And it's, I, it's just cool to watch. I mean, it's, it's kind of a different take on sport. But, right, um, it seems like all that... like. Sport is always kind of the, I feel like it's a, <clears throat> one thing we kind of battle against is it's always a sec, I feel like it's a secondary application for a lot of these technologies. So like the robotics that went into designing something like that were developed for someplace else, most likely defense or like healthcare or something like that. But it's, even though it's kind of um, delayed application of sports seem to be kind of the early adopter of some of this stuff that and, and There's it's, no regulations, limited regulations, where you don't have to go through years of trialing it with yeah. actual people. The, I mean, they're, they're writing essentially artificial intelligence, if you want to call it, artificial intelligence codes that take in pretty high-level inputs like colors and, and, and shapes and motion and speeds and things. And so that, I mean, developing the code for that is, is development. It's, 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 it's new. It's right. And that kind of leads into number in seven, like, the information technologies, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> number <segment>. seven, information <laughs> technologies. So. so this one was... Um, I think that encompasses a lot of different things. Yeah, so. I mean, well, IT's yeah, huge. <laughs> definitely uh, discuss a few of these things first. But I know in the online article, uh, radio frequency identification, the GPS, global positioning system, uh, were, dis were talked about. And I think uh, this is a huge area of growth. Um, I mean, in the UK, football's a huge sport. All the elite teams seem to have adopted um, in their training uh, uh, GPS systems. There's, there's quite a few different... So, that, so they would track how much they practice or, and then uh, apply to a game? Yeah, I mean, they can use the training sessions. Only. You're not allowed to have anything on your body during match time. All right. So what I think the, the key thing they're tracking is how far the players run during training sessions so that they can um, appropriately administer training sessions. So you know, from their Tuesday they will run 12 to 13 kilometres. It might make sense on Wednesday for them to have a lighter session. 
as uh, so I would say um, that kind of brings up the whole point of um, like just statistics and how you are kind of how you measure the game like from a tactical point of view as well not just um, how high you're jumping but more in strategy like it's a bit huge in baseball like there's a big kind of statistical revolution over the last 15, 20, 10, 15 years um, seeing it now more in basketball tennis tennis as well so we're um, now that we have the memory capability and the computing power to kind of analyze a lot of stats like you're getting a lot of new insight and that teams are trying to kind of adopt what's best to to help their team and help their team win. Yeah, I think um, at the moment you you're almost going to an inf information overload situation where you know if you're just measuring the uh, distance of, for example, the soccer players come on the pitch, that's not very insightful, really. They might right, you need someone to kind of direction. <laughs> you need someone who has kind of an inherent <laughs> knowledge of the game to kind of connect that to um, some tangible output. Exactly, and that's why yeah, I've seen a system called Emotia and that actually uses radio frequency identification so it can uh, capture the data much quicker and display in real time on a PDA as the training session is going by. Mm -hmm. So, and you can start to set parameters such as say the defenders are within uh, two meters of each other um, so, cause, uh, within football it's, it's important that the back four are in pretty much a line so the offside uh, line is you know, rigid um, you don't want say the left back to be four or five metres ahead or behind the rest of the defenders um, so what you can start to do with this sort of real time tracking is it can start sending alarm bells <laughs> say when the players are more than a metre out of line with each other kind of to augment like the players already know this but it just kind of Gives them a visual cue, or maybe like a little vibe, like an old pager style type thing, like a little vibratory like reminder. Okay, like hey, I'm not in line. Like exactly. And I'm even sure. for practice, like it kind of just it, it's just reinforcing that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen training sessions where the defenders have a huge piece of rope that they are holding right. to <laughs> try and enforce this, which is clearly detrimental to the training session. Really, <laughs> they don't want to get somewhere clotheslined and stuff. But it's a different defense technique. Yeah, and I mean, in, in, uh, in baseball, especially kind of going um, more with the information, not like just the online statistic bank that's available, like you have a lot of people from a different, all different areas, not only teams, but just individual people kind of using this kind of statistical database to develop their own kind of statistical measures over the last few years and trying to um, figure out using pretty complicated and sophisticated math, how to maybe best predict why I should select this player for my team versus the other player and um, maybe save in terms of saving contract money and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. just another another application that kind of very like straying a little away from sports technology, but it, it kind of goes hand in hand with um, I guess information technology in general. So, yeah. Definitely I mean the book to read is money goal. Yeah, and they're coming out with a movie too. I think if you don't want to read the book, you can watch Brad Pitt uh, as the main character in that. So, I mean, it's 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 just gets more visible visibility of this kind of the whole back um, backstory behind that out in the, in the public domain, which is always a a good thing. I feel so. 
Very good. So maybe should we? Uh, how much on. have we gone? So like one, two, three, four, five done. Do we want to? How much time do you have? Do you want to chop it? Because thir thirty-six, I think, is a good time for time. Yeah. 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 So I'm gonna go on for a ride. I do. Yeah. yeah. Carbon so nanotechnology will take a second. Biomimetics, maybe more. CFD, okay. a little bit more. I don't know. CFD is a funny one. It's not really anywhere. Computational fluid dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can I can talk about carbon and nanotechnology in like a minute because there's I don't know a lot about it, but okay, it's 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 general enough. Yeah. CFD probably also is quite quite quick. Yeah. What about reactive materials? All I know about it is the D three O. Yeah. And then it's not going to be very good. <laughs> I I don't think that's a big one, like. I mean, we, we, I think we just mentioned it, but I don't think it'll reactive materials. I, don't I think, think we could group reactive materials with carbon nanotechnology to say, and two of the other ones are just new materials. I'll mention those. Should I say that right now? Okay, let's go into that one. All right, number four. Um, and Skipping num around again. <laughs> yeah, and, and number eight are two sort of um, just materials. Num uh, carbon nanotechnology is one, and nanotechnology is anything that's on the scale of nanometers, which is a billionth of a meter, so one to a hundred of those. And it's been a big buzzword for the last yeah. Know, like, Ooh, carbon years. nanotubes. Yeah. And so the, the tubes are, are extraordinarily small things, and they're also quite short because it's hard to grow them long. And it's it's essentially a way of, of making stiffer and lighter materials. And so that's all we can expect from this, which is which is great. I mean, that's quite important for for most. Things. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's stiffer, lighter. stiffer and lighter. Like any any fast sports can use that. Um, it's been used in baseball bats for the last um, seven years. I think Easton's been using carbon nano. Yeah, Easton Easton was quite involved. They they um, yeah, that's that's one of the big names that came up. I think they're they're doing a lot of like, fundamental research in the area as well. Yeah, like they have research uh, partners. You know, Cybex or something like yeah. that. The the other is reactive materials, and that's a material that behaves differently under different uh, situations. So um, one one example is like a material that you hit and it becomes harder. So like in, for using um, like protective equipment, flexible when you want it to be flexible, and then if you get hit on the head, it's supposed to. Even recently, I was watching. I was uh, I was on Runner's World, um, and if you click on some of the articles, they throw up an ad at you, and it's a running shoot for Brooks. And um, they were really pumping this type of, um, I don't know what the material was, but they were kind of um, really advocating or advertising this material, like just what you were saying. Like they had a big vat of it. They would show a guy just kind of sticking his hand slowly through. You could get all the way down to the bottom. And then um, he'd pull it out. And then um, if he hit it really hard, it just kind of stay on the surface. So yeah. kind of using that as a, a shoe foam. So kind of um, trying to basically show the properties in a very simplified manner, but mm. now that kind of companies are trying to embrace that idea, it's kind of interesting. So the material is very strain rate dependent. Yes. I suppose anyone who's ever tried to run through custard or walk through it slowly would know. Right. How they That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, should we talk about biomimetics briefly? Sure. This is, this is kind of a big sweeping theme as well, and then. It's kind of a bit difficult to nail down, but it essentially means taking inspiration from nature when designing, when fabricating fabricating products. And so, um, 
think this goes hand in hand kind of with the tool's manufacturing where you're able you're Speaking able to actually shapes, yeah, yeah you kind of you have the ability to make organic shapes like the the reason we haven't seen that so far is you can't really injection mold the really complex type shape without yeah. getting really expensive molds but now that you have kind of three-dimensional freedom in a lot of these yeah. processes you might be able to see it more yeah so there are a lot of a lot of structures in nature that have have evolved to be great and and the the, the idea of biomedics is just using using those designs one practical example is the shark skin in swimsuits and sharks go through the water quite quickly because they have um, little tiny bumps on their skin called uh, denticles, um, which is just kind of little ribs and fluid dynamically they, they affect the, the turbulence of the flow around the, um, around the, around the surface and, and can basically decrease friction drag through the water. And so there, I think Speedo is the first one, there may have been another, that has created a, a swimsuit that flows much smoother and quicker through the water than human skin. And um, yeah, this was, was one example of something that has come from, from studying. But then there's regulation that steps in and you only... Yeah, oh yeah, of course. I think they've, yeah, they've cut down the full body suit this area or something. Right? Yeah. So, so. Now would be a good time to talk about uh, computational fluid dynamics. Yeah, zooming through these. Yeah, so uh, CFD, as it's known in, in the world, computational fluid dynamics, is um, is computer modeling of how fluid moves and how things move through fluid. Um, it's the um, it's the kind of wet and squishy equivalent of FEA, just like standard mechanical. Um, that might go hand in hand. I think you could put CFD with FEA. Do you, oh, think, yeah. that, do you oh. think that makes sense in terms of like? Modifying this, let's figure that a little bit in terms of. Yeah, I mean, I, I, kind of, I they kind of go hand in hand, and I think of one kind of think of the other. Agreed, and I think from my point of view, in the short term, the finite element modeling is much more advanced in terms of practicality. Certainly. Where CFD, I think, will become a useful tool, but much further down the line. Um, I've yeah. seen any sporting groups, brands use it for anything for marketing purposes. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, there are certainly gains. Um, I've, I've heard that bikers use 90% of their power to overcome just wind resistance, and so if you could decrease that with, um, with, with modeling maybe different positions or configurations on the bike or, or components on the bike to, to decrease their, their Yeah, like companies drag. like Nike have their full kind of suit that's trying to yeah. you know, take that into account. Yeah, and a lot of that's been done with wind tunnels, but um, it, it, can be, it can be switched to virtual, which, which would limit the, the number of solid prototypes that you need to make. Right, and make it more open. So yeah. Almost if you're kind of, maybe you go into a bike shop in 25 years and you kind of you take put a, in your body weight. Take or a body take a, scan. Yeah, take a picture <laughs> and you got a, a model and kind of turn it in. Yeah. Yeah, it might then be that you, depending on your body size, you want to choose a particular suit to, to fit your body. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The other, the other application of CFD is on the inside and it has been used, I'm not, I'm not sure about how if it's if it's made it this far in sport yet, but it, it has been used to model blood flow and airflow with inside the body. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty intense. So really really detailed flow patterns going on in your in your 
arteries and veins. Um, but whether that has a direct influence on the sporting world is yet to be. Um, One thing it seems pretty clear from all of this is that you just have so many done, so many things kind of developing along um, in just general engineering that you can apply to sports. So you have new materials, you have new electronics, you have this information technology, you have robotics and um, FEA, CFD, and it's really kind of showcases how multidisciplinary the sporting goods industry can be if you can start to incorporate that. And you've probably, uh, you know, you've probably seen that throughout your career. Yeah, yeah definitely agree with that. I think we're very much at the applied end in the sporting goods mm-hmm. industry. Um, as you say, you're almost looking at where things are advancing in other areas, whether it be aeronautical, automotive, or anything else, and really trying to utilize those advances in other fields um, to the you know, advantage of sporting goods brands or whether all the athlete themselves. Right, and it makes someone who's kind of in the industry doing um, as a student or as as a person working at one of these brands, like they have to just kind of always be on top of the, the latest stuff and kind of a, almost a jack of all trades and trying to understand everything, at least a, a little bit, or just to being aware of it. Very much, I think, completely agree with you. That's a very multidisciplinary approach um, to developing uh, sporting goods. Yeah, I think this. I mean, this list was just just a good way to get some conversation going. In terms yeah. of what's out there, and I'm sure, like, you could probably add ten more things to this, twenty more things, and you could we could go on for hours. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to say anything about uh, about number six? What's number six? What do we got? Digital, Digital imaging, imaging and video. video. Oh, well. yeah. so. I think we've spoken through a lot of the digital imaging type things. Yeah. I think if everyone, anyone wants to see a really cool video, um, Red Bull <laughs> have done a lot of sponsored events. And one I just saw, Wingsuit flying down Mexico way. Where <laughs> they uh, just mounted a head camera onto the, one of these wingsuits. So. Yeah, the GoPro cameras are a big... Um, Kind of smallish HD camera that like a lot of snowboarders using as well. So I think it's really allowing people that wouldn't normally have access to those worlds to see what's going on and try and get an appreciation of the sport and the adrenaline rush and so forth uh, without actually having to uh, participate in the event itself. And even just in terms of marketing, you can get your product out in unique ways that may not have been available 15, 20 years ago. Anyone can go and make a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Cost $50 to get a camera and go to whatever you want. Well, on that note, the most watched YouTube sporting clip ever is uh, a bike rider called Danny McCaskill. Um, he's sponsored by Inspired Bicycles. I think it's had nearly 20 million hits, and that was oh, just yeah. a small handheld camera. And Danny, McCas- Danny McCaskill and his bike on the streets of Edinburgh. So, you know, <laughs> definitely agree with what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. Even yesterday, I was in uh, in a little presentation that they showed a helicopter with like kind of an HD camera. So you can imagine like someone remote controlling a camera, um, either right above a field or going down a slope with a guy. Like just the amount of um, technology that's getting kind of being pushed out to kind of the mainstream person. That um, it's just amazing. Like stuff like that, you know. 
Steven Spielberg would have access to it like 20 years ago, but you and I would have a hard time unless we spent a lot of money getting kind of good AV equipment. Now it's really available to anyone. You're right. Just going to kind of increase the ability of sporting goods companies and just to get their story out there. All right. So should we should we wrap it up there, gentlemen? I think so. Good. That's a good uh, good discussion. Thanks, Yoni. Thank you, Yoni. Thank you. So hopefully have you on again at some point. So a recurring member of the Sports Tech Podcast. Definitely. So speak to you soon. Excellent. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.